Well, we're going to continue in our, our study of Philippians this afternoon. And just as a reminder, last week we looked at, uh, there was Paul giving his heart for, for the, the, the church in Philippi, telling them and warning them against Judaizers. We saw how there were certain people, Christians claiming Christ, who tried to move the church back into the Old Testament ways of living. They tried to say, you must, if you're if you're a Gentile who's converted to Christianity, you must go back to the Old Testament ways of circumcision, of cleanliness laws, and the, and the like. And Paul said, it's all loss. All that work is nothing. It means nothing compared to the gain of knowing Christ. Paul says, I was a Jew of Jews. I, I was great. I had gained much in earthly terms, but it compares to the refuse fed to dogs to know Jesus. And his desire was to attain the resurrection of the dead. His, his, his goal at the end, he says, my hope, my desire is that I will attain the resurrection of the dead. And our current section continues this thought, saying, not that I have already obtained it, that is the resurrection from the dead. But now he's saying, but I'm pressing on. I'm moving forward. And that's what we want to look at today. Okay, how do we, how do we obtain that, that glorious vision of heaven, of becoming like Jesus? How do we get there? This is where Paul is in this passage. So we're going to read Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to chapter 4, verse 1. Hear God's word. Philippians 3, 12 to 4, 1. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to let what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm, Thus, in the Lord, my beloved. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the Apostle Paul, for his example of what it looks like to press on and to stand firm. And so, Lord, help us as we study your word to press on, to stand firm in the faith, looking to Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
There's a, a, a new se a season of one of my favorite shows that I have mentioned previously. The show is called Alone. And it's all about surviving alone in the wilderness. And in particular, in this newest season, surviving alone in the Arctic as winter is descending with the aim of surviving 100 days alone in the wilderness. With the goal, of course, of winning a million dollars. Now, what is most intriguing about this show is the psychology of the contestants. I think I have mentioned this. All of them are expert wilderness survivalists and hunters. All of them can craft tools, build amazing shelters, catch fish, trap animals, and hunt with bow and arrow. In fact, the very first episode of this season, some, uh, one of the contestants saw a squirrel. Squirrels, they move around very quickly. Saw a squirrel like hopping around in a tree, and he took a rock and threw it, and he hit it. <laughs> and there he had his meal for the day. Yet, inevitably, one by one, they start to lose their nerve in, in this competition. And they know that they need to stay focused. They know that they need to keep hunting. They know that it's a mind game. But when they get hungry and tired and injured and cold and thirsty and they're alone, they lose sight of the end. They lose sight of the goal. They get so fixated on the present concerns and they get so fixated on their life back home that a million dollars becomes irrelevant to them, comparatively. Now, this is not a perfect analogy by any means, but I think the Christian life has some similarities. When we first become Christians, we are excited, energized for the fight. We're ready to run the race, to gain the crown of glory that awaits us. We are excited about Jesus. All we talk about is Jesus. When we're first becoming saved, when we first come to that realization of the good news of the gospel, that though we were dead in our sins, that we are now saved and justified through the work of Jesus Christ, when that becomes alive to us, we become excited, energized. But as time goes by, as the good fight becomes painful, as we accumulate wounds, as we suffer, we waver in the fight, don't we? We begin to think about lesser goals and aims. We begin to look at the earth and, and the things that are tangible and attainable and the glory that is here for us to get. And our focus shifts. We start looking downward rather than at Jesus. Paul, as he reflects on his own life and his pursuit of glory, or in his words, as he seeks to attain the resurrection from the dead, he recognizes those challenges that lay in the path of the Philippians. And so he exhorts them. He says, press on, stand firm, don't look back, don't waver, keep going. You're not there yet, but you will be. It's a guarantee. And I think sometimes we need this kind of encouragement, a reminder that says, Beloved by God, that is you all, those who put their faith and trust in Jesus, beloved by God in Christ, press on. Don't lose heart. Don't look back. I want to look at this call to press on in four parts. First, press on. Christ has made you his own. Second, press on. Looking ahead and not behind. Press on together. Press on together. And press on by standing firm in the Lord. But first, press on. Christ has made you his own. There are two things I want to notice about verse 12 here. 
First, there is some sort of perfection, right? Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. First, there's a perfection or a completeness for the believer. I'm going to look at that. Second, perfection is ours because Christ has made us his. Perfection is ours because Christ has made us his. That's the second thing. But first, there is a perfection to this point. But it needs some qualifications. Notice here that it says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Now, this word, am already perfect, is one word. It's a, it's a verb. It's passive. Um, and it has a similar root to a word that we might, you might have heard of before, the word telos. Telos means end, right? Telos means the, 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 the goal or the end. And so what is Paul saying here? Not that I've already obtained this goal or am perfect. The NIV translates it this way. Not that I have already arrived at my goal. What is Paul's goal? What is, it? what is that goal, that telos, that end, that perfection, that completeness? First, I'd like to say that he's not talking specifically about himself, primarily. Of course, he is talking about himself, but, but that isn't his primary idea. He's not looking at himself, necessarily. It's wrapped up in this thought that he has from chapter 1. You'll remember, if you go back to chapter 1, he said, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This is his goal. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, when we think of this kind of goal, this kind of perfection, I think we're tempted to think in abstract ways about some sort of idealized version of ourself, right? The culture talks a lot about this, about self-actualization or self-realization, about becoming the best you that you can be. This is kind of self-help 101. You need to become the best you you can be. But Paul, when he speaks about perfection, he's not speaking about himself primarily, but he's talking about Christ. His aim, his goal is to become like Jesus, both in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. Becoming complete or perfect does not mean for Paul becoming his best self. In fact, it means quite the opposite. To lose his life is to gain his life. To become like Jesus, Christ-likeness. Now, there may be some here today that for that, that idea of losing your life to become like Jesus is somewhat repulsive. You're like, I don't want to lose my identity. I don't want to become someone that I'm not. And I think sometimes in the Christian world, in the Christian community, we can feel like there's some sort of loss of our personality in becoming a Christian. And we try to conform ourselves to outward pictures of what we think it means to be a Christian. Maybe we all start wearing the same clothes. Uh, I always find it funny. Every, every church you go to, there's sort of an unsaid dress code. And slowly over time, new people kind of, kind of fall into it, right? We just sort of conform ourselves to it. Not, not necessarily terrible, just the way we are as humans. 
Maybe we start using certain cliches or phrases, Christianese or Christian speak. We think this is what it means to be a Christian. We kind of lose ourselves in trying to conform ourselves to an idea. Maybe we give up certain things that in and of themselves aren't even necessarily bad, but that's just what we're supposed to do as a Christian. You give up your old life. You give it all up, whatever it was. But this is not what the Apostle Paul is talking about when he says that we are becoming like Christ, or we're losing ourselves. In fact, it is quite the opposite. We don't lose our personhood as we become more like Jesus. Rather, we become more who we were created to be. Whom the Lord said, you are to be an image bearer of me in this world. And so as we conform ourselves to Christ, as we run that race with endurance, looking to Jesus and we're more and more reflecting Jesus, we're not losing our personality, but we're becoming who we were designed to be. We don't become lesser of ourselves, but in becoming perfected in Christ, we become who God made us to be. And what does that look like? Well, the dross of selfishness and sin are swept away, and the beauty and preciousness of Christ in us shines out. What does that look like? Well, it looks like the fruit of the Spirit. We start evidencing what it looks like to be like Jesus. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc. And here's the thing, we're not complete now. And we won't be until we see our Savior face to face. Paul says, not that I have already obtained it. Perfection is not something we can attain in this life. We live in what theologians like to call the already, not yet. And if you're like me, this is a huge discouragement. I want to be transformed now. I want to be changed now. I don't want to go through a lifetime of pain and sorrow and sin and suffering. I want to look like Jesus now. So where do we go if we're so, so discouraged? I think our hope is here. It's that perfection is ours because Christ has made himself ours. I mean, sorry, Christ has made us his. Paul, as I mentioned in my intro, intro, is transitioning from the thought in verse 11 where he said that by any means possible I might attain the resurrection of the dead. Now, taken on its own, this verse might have you wonder if at the end of the day Paul believes that he is the one who will accomplish the task of attaining the resurrection from the dead. But here, Paul quickly qualifies what he said. Not that I've already obtained it or am already perfect or complete. You see, he recognizes the incompletion of the process. But he goes on to say, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And, and this idea has been noted over and over again in this letter. Paul's confidence is not rooted in himself, but it is rooted in his union with Christ. So he said in chapter 1, verse 6, For I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That, that completion, that word there in 
Chapter 1, verse 6 is in this same word group as telos, as completeness or perfection. Same idea. End of chapter, or middle of chapter 2, he says, work out your faith with in fear and trembling for what? For it is God who works in you both to will and to do. It is that union with Christ. Jesus has made you His own. You know, I brought up this, the, the show Alone, and the marked difference between the contestants on the show Alone and the believer is that the completion of the challenge and reward for the believer are guaranteed. I wonder how it would change those contestants' fortitude if they were told at the beginning that they would definitely make it to the end, no questions asked, and they would definitely receive the reward of a million dollars. If the producer said to them, listen, it is going to get rough. At times it'll feel like death. You will cry. You will face terrors. You will be hungry and thirsty and cold, but you will make it and you will receive a million dollars guaranteed. Do you think that would change their mindset? Do you think they would just roll over so quickly? They knew for certain that that money was theirs, that their survival was a, as a guarantee. Believers, we are called to press on. And we can press on because we know that Christ is ours, that he made us his own. Though Paul has all confidence in Christ to press on despite not being perfected, yet with all the challenges that he has yet to face, this doesn't mean that he isn't tempted to stop or go back. And this brings me to my second point. He says, press on, looking ahead, not behind. Now, scholars aren't completely certain what Paul means here when he says, forgetting what lies behind. What is Paul forgetting? Is he forgetting his past life when he was a Jewish zealot who persecuted the church? Is he forgetting his sin, in other words? Or is he forgetting his past accomplishments as an apostle, all the, the, the work that he had done to spread the gospel and to bring people to Jesus? Now, let me put it in very simple terms. Is he forgetting his sin, forgetting what leaves behind, forgetting his sin, or is he forgetting his fruitfulness as a Christian? Well, I'm not sure. But I think it is better not to be an either-or question, but a both-and. In other words, he's forgetting it all. And I want to be clear, he obviously hasn't forgotten his past life. He just regaled us on how he was a Jew of Jews. He, he talks about his past life. He also talks about his accomplishments. And so what does it mean then for him to say that he forgets? Well, Paul is painting an illustration of a runner, right? One thing I know, I don't run, but one thing I know about running is that to look back is a bad idea, right? Like if you're running, to look back where everybody else is slows you down. You end up getting discouraged. You might end up giving up if you see somebody coming up. I don't know that much about running. But one thing I know is that as a runner, you keep your eye fixed on the goal. It's interesting. The best athletes have this ability to forget their mistakes and play as if they're going to win. I have this problem whenever I play sports. I always see my mistakes. I don't know about you, but it makes games like tennis and golf particularly hard because every missed shot is stuck in that head. The best athletes forget it. They press on towards the goal. 
They keep going. And even though they might practice to fix their mistakes after the fact of a game or race, they keep shooting. They keep hitting during the game. They keep running. The Patriots notoriously downplay their wins no matter how great those wins were, right? You could picture it. It's the Patriot way. They could have won the best game ever, and Belichick would be like, yeah, they kind of stunk in this part of the game, and they did okay over here, but we're looking to the next week. They never celebrated their win. They just said, we're on to the next game until they won the Super Bowl, and then they would celebrate, of course. And Paul is saying something like this. I don't wallow in my past failures and I don't rest on my laurels. Meaning I don't rest on the accomplishments that I have made. Instead, I look forward. I press on with my eyes fixed on Jesus. And this mentality affects our pursuit of Christ. Here's what happens when we take our eyes off of Jesus. Two things that can happen. First, we can become discouraged by that constant failing, right? If you're always looking back at your sin, if you're always thinking about, woe is me, all the terrible things that I've done, if you're constantly, what I call navel-gazing, woe is me, I'm a terrible person, I can never move forward. I never change. I'm always struggling with lust, or I'm always struggling with greed, or worry, or envy, or pride, or anger, or whatever your sin is. And you say, it's just the way that I am. I'm never going to change. You're constantly looking back. But the other side, the flip side of that coin, is you can look back and you can say, man, look at me. Look, look what I did the other day for so-and-so. I don't, I don't struggle with greed like that person over there, and I'm not a worrywart. I'm easygoing. I don't struggle with lust. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. So the first leads to despair, and the second leads to pride. But when we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, on his character, on his work, on his love, on his power, on his goodness, on his perfection, rather than despairing, Rather than being puffed up with pride, we become humble and hungry to be like Jesus. It transforms us. We find joy and delight in who Jesus is and what, he's, what he has done, and we long to be like him. And we look forward. To Jesus. Press on, looking ahead, not behind. Remembering that we have not made it our own, but Christ is at work in us. He has made us his own. Praise God. Press on. Third, press on together. In verses 15, and Paul says, Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if and, and by think this way, it says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is what he does. He looks, he sets his heart and mind on that goal, and he moves forward, and he's saying here, now let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true 
to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. I want you to notice something that happens here. He moves from verse 14 where he says, I press on toward the goal. Two, in verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. You notice that shift? He had been talking about himself, and now he says, we're together in this. This is an us thing. The ESV says particularly, let those of us who are mature think this way. But Paul is using a word very similar to the word that we have already seen for perfect. The word mature has, is part of that same word group where we got the word telos, goal, completion. So it's part of the same word group here when, he, when it talks about mature. And so the word mature has the sense of perfect or complete. So it's interesting here that Paul says that those of us who are complete or perfect think this way. Some translations actually use that language, and it's kind of confusing. You say, why would, the, why would Paul say that? Didn't he just say that we're not complete, that we're pressing on towards a goal, that, that he has not arrived or attained perfection yet, but that he's moving in that direction? So why here does he say, well, for those of us who are complete or mature? Well, I think the ESV translators got it right when they said mature, because there is a sense in which we grow up in Christ. He understands that there's a race being run. He has just said, press on. He knows that he is continuing to press on, but he's suggesting that there is growth and maturity in the life of the believer. This is why we read the catechism question earlier uh, on sanctification. What is sanctification? It's a work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, and hear these words, and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. That means that in sanctification there is a process of growing up. That's what we're doing. We're maturing. We're growing up. I think sometimes we believe that the Christian life is more like a treadmill. You run, but you don't go anywhere. You might fall off occasionally, but you still just aren't going anywhere. You might fall and skin your knees, but you are not moving forward. That's often how we think of the Christian life. But honestly, this is to deny the power of Christ in us. It is not infrequent that I talk to discouraged Christians and have to confess that I myself are prone to such spiritual discouragement to feel like I'd never change. I start looking back and I say, woe is me, I'm still the same sinner that I was yesterday and the sinner that I was the day before, I'm never going to change. Maybe you're like this. Apostle Paul's calling us to maturity, to grow up in Christ. And when we say, I'm never changing, this is just the way that I am, we're actually, in, in, in a sense, being prideful about our sin. We're saying, God is not strong enough to change me. He might be strong enough to change you, but my sin is worse. Christ doesn't have the power to do that. Maturity and faith is not possible. 
But Christ says, He is greater than our sin. He is the Lord of glory. Look at the very end of this passage where it says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. What He's saying is that I am in you, and I have the power to transform you. Do you believe this? Paul calls us to maturity and faith. But more than that, the person also encourages and strengthens others to do the same. Paul says, be mature, be an example, follow me. Watch the lives of mature believers. This is such an interesting thing. He's been telling everybody up to this point, you're to go and look at Jesus and run the race with endurance. And now he says, look at me. We've seen this a few times in this little letter. And I think it kind of rubs us the wrong way. What do you mean, Paul, look at you? Who are you? You're just a man. I think it rubs us the wrong way because it rubs us, our American sensibilities, the wrong way. Isn't it true of every generation of Americans that we try to shed the shackles of our parents We all seek autonomy. We don't want people to tell us how to live our lives. The idea of looking to an example isn't something we're about. We have no problem looking to an example if it's some nameless face on YouTube. No, we'll YouTube a thousand examples and say, well, now I know the truth. My parents didn't know anything, but but I've got it down. The interwebs told me so. We don't like to be told what to do, and we don't really like to look other at others for examples. This is just the American way. And as Christians, I don't know that we're really that different. We like to forge our own paths, reinvent the wheel. We're quick to judge the failings of other Christians, but we're slow to acknowledge their wisdom and maturity. We are individualistic. I follow Christ, not Christians. But Paul's point is not that they follow him per se, not that they follow Paul per se, but that they follow him in as much as he reflects Jesus. Remember, maturity is the reflection of Christ in us. And this is the beauty of our faith, that we are not alone but that we have one another. And so Paul calls us, encourage one another, set examples of humble faith for one another. Those who are mature. What does it look like to be mature? Well, it looks like pressing on toward that goal and humble and, and, and humble faith. To be a mature Christian is to look to Jesus and to strive after him with all our might. And as we do that, as we strive in humility with all our might to follow Jesus, we encourage others to come along with us. Press on, brothers and sisters, together. And this is my final point in conclusion. Press on by standing firm in the Lord. In verse 18 and 19, Paul gives us a negative example of everything he has been talking about. Scholars have a hard time trying to figure out who exactly Paul is talking about here. He says, For uh, brothers, join in imitating me as I, uh, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. 
For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Who are these people? I don't know. Were they the Judaizers? I don't think so. Are they wayward Christians? Maybe. What we see here is that they're enemies of the cross of Christ. It seems likely that he is speaking about people in general who at one time professed faith and who now walk as enemies of the cross. These are people who have abandoned their faith for the world. Rather than fixing their eyes on Jesus and running the race, so to speak, they've thrown in the towel and their eyes are now fixed on the glories that are about them. Paul says, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame, and they set their minds on earthly things. In other words, they have set their hearts and affections on gaining the world. I think there's a really strong warning by Paul here to fix our affections, to fix our appetites, our desires on this life, on the things of this world, it will lead to destruction. It reminds me of Vanity Fair and Pilgrim's Progress. If you've ever read it, uh, pilgrims are going into this city, this town on their journey called Vanity Fair, where everything is, is of course, vain. And Bunyan described it this way, Therefore at this fair are all such merchandises sold, houses, lands, trades, places, honors, preferments, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts, pleasures, and delights of all sorts. Those are the things that allure us. They're, they're tangible. One of the challenges we have when we say, just look to Jesus, just go after the crown, press on toward glory, is that it feels so distant and removed. But when someone says, hey, come enjoy this thing here right now and you'll get all the glory you'd ever want. Right now, you have, you have immediate, tangible glory. It's like, Again, going back to this show alone, if, if someone goes into the show and says, you can either have a steak meal or continue on in your journey for a million dollars, which is still 90 days away, what are you going to do? Here it is. Choose one or the other. Well, I think many of us would be like, I'm, I'll take the meal. I'm ready to go home. I'm done. It's vanity. Paul says it is the path of destruction. You see, this is not our home, and the best things of this life don't compare. They don't compare. I think our struggle is that we think of heaven like an ethereal castle in the sky. But heaven isn't just some future kind of ethereal space where we float around on clouds or something like that. No, heaven is the place where our Savior dwells. It is His home. It is there that He dwells in all glory. And there He is, seated at the right hand of the Father, the one who created all things. And He says, come to me. He's the one who has made us His own. He's the one who's transforming us daily from one degree of glory to another, and he's preparing us 
for that heavenly home where there is no more sin, where there is no more grief, where there are no more trials, where there is no more weakness, where there is no more pain, where there are no more animosities and divisions, where we are all one in Christ, where we will be transformed bodily with perfected bodies without stupid leg thingy-majiggers. We'll be like Jesus himself. The biggest difference between that TV series and our race to glory is that now we are not alone. We are united to the Savior who has already run the race for us, who is the author and perfecter, who is bringing us home to glory. And we're not only not alone because we're united to Christ, but we're united to one another. Look at the end here. Paul says, therefore, my brothers. Do you look at the overwhelming love that Paul has, his union with them. He says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and whom I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. United to Christ, Paul says, stand firm. Press on. Your home awaits you. You will be transformed. Yes, you will face trials and struggles, but you don't face it alone. You face it with the Lord Jesus. You face it with your brothers and sisters. Press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.